We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 2. I didn't have Charles read it because it's a pretty lengthy text. But in this uh, time that we've been looking at the gospel, it is a text that really I just kind of enumerated. There must be 12 to 15 massive, major theological platform column ideas in this text. Um, The text is written in Hebrews, and really the whole book is written because of a concern. Is my ear deal on? Do I look all right? Everything all right? Yeah, okay. Okay, just fine. There is a concern about uh, Jewish Christians, book of Hebrews. And what was happening is that, I don't feel like my deal's on right here. Hang on just a second. Now, huh? Okay, everything. <laughs> all right, all right. Go back where I was. Uh, there was a concern about Jewish Christians that were apostatizing and going back to the synagogue. And the reason they were doing this was probably twofold. Number one, Christ did not return when they thought. There was a the thought that he would die, rise, ascend, and come back, like in their generation. And lo and behold, he did not. That's why the author will say in chapter 10, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. We believe that. And so he didn't come back as quick as they wanted. And during this interim time, uh, Judaism was always regarded by the Roman Empire as an allowed religion within the empire. And Christianity was seen as part of Judaism. By the end of the century, it was seen as different. And Rome was no longer the um, protector of the church. Now Nero would put Paul to death and would put uh, Peter to death. And so now not just the synagogue was excommunicating them, but Rome was turning on them. And so that is why you see in the book of uh, Hebrews, there are six different times of warnings to those Christians about going back to their old way of life. Um, In chapter two, in verse um, one, you see, we must pay closer attention so that we don't drift. They were beginning to drift slowly and surely. They were beginning, some of them, to forsake the assembling of themselves together. They're, They're, well, in the Christian church, the world, is the grist mill. It is the fire by which Christians are tested. You remember Jesus' parable that uh, the sower sows the word and some fall among rocky soil, doesn't have much depth of soil. Immediately it springs up with joy, but when persecution arises, immediately it falls away. The world is the refiner's fire of what the true Christian is. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's already begun. And so they were beginning to drift away, to not pay attention. In Hebrews 5, he says, concerning Melchizedek, I have much to say, and it's hard to teach because you've become dull of hearing. By this time, you ought to be teaching others also. But we got to go and teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So they're drifting, they're not paying attention. And as a result, in verse 3, 
How shall we escape if we, and there you see a strong statement of what drifting and not paying attention results in. It's neglecting your salvation. They're proving to be false Christians and going back to their old way of life. And the author goes on to say, he says, look in verse two, if the word spoken through angels, meaning the law given at Sinai with angelic presence, if it proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, meaning if God was faithful to punish the renunciation of Moses, how, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was spoken not through Moses just, it was spoken through the Lord, through Christ, the Son of God. It was confirmed by those who heard, the eyewitnesses of the apostles. And then for God, bearing witness with them by signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. He says, you've got God, you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got Christ, and you've got the apostles. Now, if you wandered from the law and rejected it and you got judged, what do you think is going to happen when you reject the incarnation of God and the Father and the Spirit and the apostles on what they tell you to do? And so the author doesn't accuse the readers of being false, but what he does do is he warns them about some concerns he's observing. Symptoms of, uh, of temporal faith. There are people that have come through our church that were, you know, just gung-ho, going, going, going. Then all of a sudden, you didn't see them anymore. Then all of a sudden, they weren't in Bible study anymore. And then you started hearing about things about them. And uh, it just made you want to sit down and ask them, hey, how committed were you to your gospel faith? Where are you? How do you know that a person is a Christian? They orthodoxly, they, they agree with the biblical testimony of Christ. They are born again. They have a change. They love the brethren and they persevere. They persevere. How long have I known you, Debbie? 40 plus years. I knew her in high school. When I do her funeral, I'm going to do a great job. Because <laughs> I've watched Debbie. I know she walks with God. Do I know Debbie Abram is a Christian? I haven't seen the book of life, but I'm convinced she is. I know what she believes. I've watched her life, and I've watched her life over 40 years. She's an old woman. <laughs> And I've watched you. Same way when I die, you hadn't seen my name on the book of life, but you have observed me for a long time. So like he'll say later in the book of Hebrews, let none of us even seem to have come short of it. Don't, the, don't even let there be a doubt that you belong to God. Amen. Don't be what Theodore Roosevelt called a mug wump with your mug on one side of the road and your wump on the other. You need to be totally committed to what you're doing. This is too serious a stuff than just piddle around with it. Well, what I want you to look at, though, is that in verse uh, 3, he mentions a statement that he mentions nowhere else in Scripture. It's called, How Great a Salvation. Isn't that a great term? 
How great a salvation. That's the best the author can do. That God would send his son down here to convert us, rise from the dead, the Holy Spirit confirm it through conversions. How great a salvation. And that's what I want to do with you this morning is explain to you from verse 5 and following what he meant by how great a salvation. In verse 5, here's what he means. If God did not subject to angels the world to come, what is the world to come? The world that we are in is not the world that originally was the Garden of Eden. And this is not the world that we will end with. Did y'all know that? This is not the final step of humanity. There is a world to come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And so that's the longing of the author is to see the kingdom of God. Would y'all like to spend eternity in Denton? I mean, be honest right here. It's a good place. But there is a verse 5, a world to come. To you and I, we may not know what that was, but to a Jew, he did. The Jew talked about the Messiah reigning in Israel under the kingdom of David over the land of, of Canaan with Israel regathered in the glory of the world to Messiah. That's why I am a premillennialist and I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ in a literal kingdom. It's not just because the Bible teaches it, because it does. It's because God happens to be the God of reality and of all history. And he's not going to be defeated. This world will end up like he intended it to be. And I hold to that. It's not just because the kingdom idea is literal because it is. It's because God doesn't quit. And this is not the best God can do. And so he didn't subject to angels this world to come. Uh, but he has testified somewhere in Psalm 8 about who he has given the kingdom to. Who is going to rule the kingdom of God? It's not going to be angels. He is not subjected to angels, the world to come. You know who he has subjected it to? To men and women. Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? Meaning, when I look at humans, I'm thinking, when I look at the Milky Way galaxy and look at all the heavens, and then I look at humans, and I think, what is man that you would give a dern about this little human being? What is man that you remember him or are concerned about him, but you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, that there's going to be a day that man will rule the kingdom of God with a particular representative man that will bring him there, named Jesus. But you've made him a little lower than the angels. And then the rest of the text, what does this language sound like? You've crowned him with glory and honor, appointed him over the works of your hands, put all things in subjection under his feet. He's over all, everything's under him, and you've crowned him with glory. That is man. That's what Adam was meant to be. God said to him, you'll subdue the creation. You'll gain dominion 
and you will rule it. You will be fruitful and multiply. It's like God took Adam and made him like the child that would run the father's family business. It's been said by one theologian, Theodorus of Mopsuestinus. You ever read? Don't worry about it. From Antioch. And he said that when God made the creation, he put a statue of himself in the middle of it to show who made it. And that was the image of God in Adam. That's man. When Eric Sauer, the theologian, wrote his book on anthropology, the study of man in the Bible, he simply named it the king of the earth. That's man. He's majestic. And in verse 8, he says, but in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject. You remember he said, Adam, name the animals. What they name them, that it is. And everything is underneath you. You rule, gain dominion. And in verse 8, he left nothing that is not subject. But we now do not yet see all things subjected to him. Would you agree that something happened between the creation and where we are now? Something bad happened. We don't yet see man ruling all things. Man now is put in the dust of death. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. Oz Guinness wrote a book about man back in the uh, 19, I believe, 60s, early 70s. It was simply called the dust of death. Man is the amnesiac prince. He is the child of God. Adam is called the son of God by creation. And yet he has become the enemy of God and he has gone mad. He has lost his memory of who he was. And now he thinks that the worst thing that ever happened to him, uh, sin is the best thing that ever happened. And he thinks the greatest thing that ever happened to him, God is the worst thing he could be exposed to. He has gone mad. He has become the garrison demoniac, wounding himself, living in the tombs, cutting himself, gashing himself, crying out in the night. People can only can chain him, but he'll break him, and he just goes off moaning in his pain. Jesus comes to him, and he falls down before him and says, what is there between me and thee? I want nothing to do with you, Jesus, holy one of God. Have you come to torment me before the time? And Jesus said, shut up, puts the demons in his place. And that's man. Are you with me? Man is the fallen prince. Uh, we do not yet see all things subjected. Man's nature is alien to God. He is called the seed of the serpent. Women will mess up wifery. Men will mess up husbandry. Kids are born in pain for a life of pain. He's alienated from his fellow man. He'll murder his fellow man. All other animals will just eat other animals. We'll kill them just for fun. We'll kill them for their shoes. There's just places you can't go because of the danger. That is called the doctrine of total depravity. One Englishman said the doctrine of total depravity simply means that whatever God makes, man can screw it up. There's no place you can put man that he can't screw it up. The arts, politics, the media, authorship, the home, kids, 
Wherever you put him, man can mess this thing up. He is totally depraved. And so he says, we've got a problem. Are you with me so far? What a great salvation, the world to come. God will not subject it to angels. He subjects it to his prize creation, man. But we don't see it happening. All we see is a creation. How many ways can the creation kill you? It has become thorns and thistles. There are mosquitoes that can kill you. You ever heard of malaria? There are fleas that can kill you. You ever heard of the bubonic plague? And worst of all, there's monkeypox. So there's no place you can go. There are snakes that can bite you, yea, swallow you whole. There are meteorites. You ever been hit by a meteorite? Happened one time in history. Do you know that? That's all. A woman in Sylacauga, Alabama in the 1950s, laying on her couch, taking a nap, nine pound chunk of iron came right through her ceiling, hit her on the buttock. You can look it up on Facebook and there it is. Yes. Silicaga, Alabama. Only time it's ever happened that a human being has been hit by a meteorite and lived. You know who else is from Silicaga, Alabama? Jim Neighbors. Gomer Pye. Surprise, surprise. That's where he got that. Shazam. All right. It's all true. It's also the only place you can get pink granite. All right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Second service is a lot of fun. You know, let's have a good time. Verse 9, but, verse 8, you got a big but. Now we don't see all things subject. Verse 8, but, there's hope. We do see him. Second person, singular pronoun. There is a man. We see him made for a little while lower than the angels, he became one of us, namely Jesus. I love the text that says we see him. Not that we saw him in the gospels, we see him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. One of us made it. You dig? One of us did not sin. One of us was obedient, verse nine, uh, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Verse seven, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Verse nine, we see somebody that was crowned. He was obedient to the point of death. Unlike Adam. Unlike Adam, he would obey all through his life, continue in subjection to his parents. And then when he was tempted by the devil to turn these stones into bread, he would say, no, throw yourself in the temple. No, bow down and worship me and avoid the cross. No, Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Not my will, thine be done. Adam said, not thy will, mine be done. This man said, not my will, thine be done. And he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And thus he was crowned. He rose from the dead, ascended, sat down, and had the name given 
above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You ever heard that verse? Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by obedience to the point of death, even death as a criminal on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, the future king. He did it. And so we do see him. Now, verse 10 is the key verse of the text. Now, what you're seeing here is a great salvation. God committed to man the rule of the cosmos, but he lost his mind and he's fallen. He's the amnesiac prince. He's gone mad. And we don't see the kingdom. We see bloodshed everywhere. But there is one man who made it. He was obedient to the point of death and he died in verse nine. He tasted death for every man. He was a substitute. He came for us and he did what we wouldn't do. And he did what we couldn't do is die and rise for our sin. He did it. And so in verse 10, he's going to explain why Jesus had to die. It was, my Bible says fitting. Anybody got a different word than fitting? It's the Greek word prepo, P-R-E-P-O, and it means to be proper, something that's proper. Uh, right now, we've got places in our country where you are guilty of a crime, you pay no bail, you just walk. Amen, anybody been watching that? And there's something that rubs you wrong. Why? Because you don't feel people should be forgiven? No, because it's not proper. You've evaded law. And so for God to get people into heaven, he can't just say all the all outs and free. You can't just be a Unitarian or a Universalist and think God is too good to judge, man is too good to judge him. No, somebody better pay. If God says to Adam and Eve, you can walk, there'd better be something dying. Something does. A lamb dies and he covers them with his blood as an anticipation of one that's going to come. And so it is not proper for man to go to heaven. And we have a lot of problems in theology talking about how God could send a man to hell. Do you know the Bible does not have a real problem with that? The problem the Bible has is not how God can send men to hell. It's how God can get a human to heaven. How can you get a round peg in a square hole and you can't avoid the square hole and the round peg can't change himself? How are you going to get him in? That's the riddle of the Bible. Well, the answer is, verse 9, the perfect obedience and the perfect death of Jesus Christ as our substitute for everyone. Verse 10, 4, he says, let me explain why he did this. Jesus didn't die for the arbitrary will of God, 
that I can save man a number of ways, I will choose Christ. No, he died for the nature of God. He died because there was no alternative. It was either hell for everyone or heaven for some. He had to die. In verse, I'll give you, it's second service, we can go a little longer. There was a belief in the Middle Ages that people trying to make Christianity reasonable and a guy named Dunce, D-U-N-S, Scotus, he said that Jesus quit looking for rational reasons why Christ died on the cross. He said, God is infinite. He doesn't have to obey reason, quote. And he could have saved man with nothing at all. Or he could have saved man by a rock being crushed in our place or an animal being crushed in our place or an angel being crushed in our place, or another man being crushed in our place. But he chose as an act of reason to have, or an act of his arbitrary will, to have his son become a man and die in our place. He said, God is free to do whatever he wants. And there he supposedly solved the question of the understanding of how a holy God could demand a perfect sacrifice. And the early church, middle medieval church, looked at that, that he died for the will of God, not the nature of God. And they said, no, that's not right. Jesus didn't die because God had an alternative. Jesus died because there was no other way, because the nature of God demands punishment for sin. Amen. That's not an option. It must. It's coextensive with his very nature. It's his holiness. And only one person can die, and that is a divine being with perfect, but a human being that has to submit himself and God and do what man will not do. It's going to have to be a God-man, and he's going to have to die and rise from the dead in victory and ascend and be seated. No, Duns Scotus. He did not die for the will of God merely. He died because of the inviolable nature of God. To remain God. God must be God. That's why we don't like criminals walking. Amen? It's not proper. You didn't deal with justice. And so from that point on, if anybody held to the belief and teachings of dunce goddess, they merely referred to them as a dunce. You ever get a dunce cap? That's where it came from. So if somebody says to you, yeah, you dunce, you say, oh, no, I believe he died for the nature of God. <laughs> it's a perfect end to the wood. And so in verse 10, it was proper for him, God, for whom are all things. God is the creator and everything is to glorify God. Not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself, Paul said. If we live, we live for the Lord, die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The Bible says that in the final day, God shall be all in all. How many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess? Everything will submit itself in heaven and on earth. And so it was proper for God, for whom are all things? Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? It is to know God and glorify him. That's the purpose of God. It says that in the final stage of all creation, Revelation 22, 
It says, they shall look on his face and God shall be among them. That's the beatific vision of everything submitted to God. Finally, we will have Psalm 8 of man the king. And so, for whom are all things, because through whom are all things. What is there in the universe that does not owe its existence to God? Nothing. John said of Jesus, for in him all things were created, and apart from him was nothing created that has been created. And in him was life, and his life was the light of men. From him, through him, and to him are all things. He is the source, the means, and he is the object of all creation, is the glory of God. And so, it was proper for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing, meaning bringing back. If you want to add the word back, feel free, because that would be a proper gloss right here. In bringing men back to glory. That is what the kingdom of God and the eternal state will be, is man will be back to where he belonged. Whenever you look at CNN, Canaanite News Network, and you want to throw yourself off a bridge because you're looking at, Lord, what a mess we have done. What a mess we have made of this stuff. And you're thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could bring man back to glory? If we could reconcile him back to, to a proper state. How are we going to do it? Jefferson said, educate him. Yeah, that'll work. Make him gluten-free. Uh, put him through analytic psychotherapy of Mr. Freud. Uh, Maybe just centrifuge out the evil gene. All right? How can we fix this thing? In bringing many sons to glory, verse 9, crowned with glory. Verse 7, crowned with glory. What is he talking about? Bringing man back to the world to come that will uh, usher in the eternal state. But he's looking at man being what man was meant to be, the ruler. How are we going to bring him back? That he had to perfect the author of their salvation with sufferings. I'm going to take each point here. Make sure you get it. This monumental theology here. For God to bring many sons to glory. And that's when you and I are raised from the dead and with Christ, ruler in his kingdom, and then will forever lastingly be with him. And man will be brought back to where he was. Well, he will have to perfect the author of their salvation. We're going to need an author of salvation. It is the Greek word that means to go first. Arch first, ego to go or to lead. It appears twice in the New Testament, and it's the word prince. The pre, the first. The prince is the guy that goes first. That's why he's the prince. And so some Bibles will say he perfected the prince of their salvation. For you and I and man to get back where he was, we're not going to do it ourselves. Can you dig it? Man is not going to fix this thing. Politics, medicine, education, smartphones that make you stupid, 
man is not going to fix this thing. He's going to have to have a singular second person male pronoun. A him is going to have to be the author or the prince of their salvation. Anybody here named Archie? Your name comes from this Greek word. Arch egos, to go first. Somebody is going to have to come down here like Normandy and lay his life down so that the rest of America can come in and CB set up a colony and then move towards Berlin. But that first guy has to sit down here. Who's the guy in the Bible that Satan wants to kill when he's the earliest? Moses? No, it's Jesus. As soon as he's born, here comes Herod. We got to kill him. All right, because he has designs on our crown. And so he is the prince of their salvation. And to do that, he has to, verse 9, die. He has to die to the justice of God. And he has to be someone who is obedient to the point of death. He's got to be a spotless creation. Debbie, I'd die for you, but I can't. I've got sins to die for. Uh, old Revo would have died for you, but he can't. That was her daddy. He's got sins to die for. Nobody can die for you except one fellow who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because of the suffering of death that is crowned with glory and honor. And so there has to be a spotless sacrifice that is a divine holiness. It has to be one that the demons call Jesus, holy one of God, that Judas calls an innocent man, that Pilate says he has done nothing wrong. Someone that the thief on the cross can say, this man has done nothing wrong, that the executioner can say this man was innocent. It has to be somebody that is immaculate, that they cannot find one spot on him. He's got to have a divine holiness, but it has to be lived in a human life. He has to forge that holiness. It must be lived out. In other words, he can't be, you've heard me say it before, Christ can't be Clark Kent. Clark Kent looked like a man, but was he? No, he could not identify with us. He didn't even have to obey gravity for crying out loud. Uh, he could vacation in the Antarctic. Have you read the comic books, Debbie? He, it was his fortress of solitude. It was sub-zero. He... Lois Lane couldn't figure it out. See, to change, all he had to do was do this and put his hair down. <laughs> hey, Clark. Hey, Superman. Hey, Clark. Hey, Superman. She's a stupid woman, you know? <laughs> Was Lois Lane. She was in the media, if you'll recall. <laughs> for the, yeah, for the Daily Planet, yeah. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. She should have wondered why he's always wearing them red tights, you know, everywhere he goes. What are you doing in that phone booth, all right? And so Clark Kent couldn't identify with us. Jesus wasn't Clark Kent. He was one of us, placed in a manger, went all the way through life. One of the worst lives you could have to live 
of obedience to the point of death and be a criminal and keep your mouth shut and not say anything to die as a sacrifice. And so he had to be humanly perfect. That's why, why didn't God just let Christ die in the manger and be done with it? Why didn't he let him die when they took him to the cliff outside of Nazareth to throw him off and he passed through their midst? Why didn't he let him die for sin when he was scourged, when he shed his blood with the crown of thorns? No. He had to be, verse 10, perfected. You know, you know what the word perfected is in Greek? It's the word telos. It has to go all the way to the end. He has to obey to Gethsemane. Will you take torture and death? Or will you do what you are owed, and that is to walk? And I will obey God to the point of death. The word telos means to be perfect. On the cross, that was one of the last words he, he said. It's pronounced te talestai. And it's pronounced in English, finished. Finished. To talestai. I have gone the distance. I've gone the distance. Matter of fact, that Titalistai means that it's something that is perfected. It will never, ever be done again. It's perfect. So you don't have to work your way to heaven. A God has become a man and a manger and a normal life, and he would not use his powers to escape what he became. Turn these stones into bread. Nope. Throw yourself down, and the angels will be, nope. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. You don't have to go through this. Nope. Defend yourself before Pilate. Nope, not a word. What was the last temptation of Christ? If you are the Messiah, take yourself down from the cross. Said it three times. Nope, I will not. What a man. And so he was a perfect, you know what one theologian said? That in the Garden of Eden, Christ ripened, perfected. When do you crush a grape? When do you get the blood of a grape? When it has come to full maturity. That's what Gethsemane means. It means the garden of crushing. Gethsemane. And so he went all the way. And as a result, in verse 11, he who sanctifies Jesus, to sanctify means that he has cleansed us, declared us righteous, filled us with his spirit, and made us heavenly participants. Isn't that marvelous? We're sanctified. He that sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, that's you, are all from one. Now, how many of you have a Bible that after the word one has a word in italics? Everybody? How many of you have a Bible that has the word father in italics? Okay. How many of you that have the word father the word Father is with a capital F. Cross it out. It's not the Bible. It's an addition by the commentators that simply did not attend Denton Bible. Okay. It should be a small F. They're all from one Father. The same term is used in Acts 17. Paul said, 
God made from one all nations. Question, what's the one? Adam, and that's the one here. That he made from one. Jesus came, traced his bloodline back to Mary that traced her bloodline back to Adam. You and I trace ourselves back to Adam. He became one of us. That we are all from one father, and therefore he is not ashamed. Only three times in the New Testament is the Christian called the brother of Christ. We sing it in one of our hymns. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, O men of God. We're brethren. You know where else this is used? It's very interesting. When Christ rose from the dead, Mary Magdalene goes, sees the tomb open. Christ makes herself known, himself known. She grabs his legs, never to let him go again. And he says, stop holding to me. Go tell my brethren that I am rising to my God and their God, my father and your father. You're now adopted. I've come down to get you. I've become one of you. And now I can take you home. Isn't that something? I can take you home. Well, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And he quotes here in verse 12 from Psalm 22. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. When I say Psalm 22, do y'all know what Psalm 22 is about? It is the leading messianic psalm. It begins with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Thou, they have pierced my hands and feet. They gamble for my robe. For my robe they cast lots. Uh, the bulls surround me. The dogs surround me. Deliver me from the power of the dog. And then all of a sudden he says, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. It's like he is resurrected and in the temple of God, all the remnant of God that is faithful comes and he calls them my brothers. This author takes Psalm 22 and makes it typological to Jesus that David is a forerunner of someone who will die and out of that death, he will, his death will be a womb by which will come brothers. Isn't that something? Where are they now? I'm looking at them. He is called the firstborn from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him in its power. And he arose, the firstborn of those who sleep. Amazing. So when you rise from the dead and say, I made it, Christ will say, done been there. I did it for you. And in verse 13, he quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah is surrounded by the camp of Ahaz that are in rebellion. But Isaiah says, not me, a sole singular man. I have put my trust in him. I will obey God. And then in the next verse, in 13, verse 13 is from Isaiah 8, 17. The second part of the verse is Isaiah 8, 18. Isaiah says, I have put my trust in him. And in the next, he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. The faithful that believed Isaiah that are called his people. And the author takes David and Isaiah 
and makes them anticipatory of our Lord Jesus, who solitarily would obey God, and out of his obedience, a family would come. How about that? That's you and I. We are the family. John chapter 6, all the Father has given to me, they will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will not cast out, and I will raise him on the last day. For I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is his will, that all of whom the Father has given to me, I lose, not one. I raise him on the last day. I have my hand over them, and no one shall snatch them from my hand. The Father's hand is over mine, and he is greater than all, and none shall snatch them from my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Are you happy? That's the best human language can do, is that event right there. I'll tell you what it's like. You remember when you go to Denny's? And there was that little machine and your kid would start griping to give you a quarter and it had the hook and you'd try to grab the whatever and bring it up. That's the ministry of Christ. He comes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. Kid can understand it. It's the Shawshank Redemption. You're in Shawshank Prison. An evil guy has you there. You're an innocent person. You love old Morgan Freeman, Red, who's the only guy in Shawshank that will admit he's guilty. And so you got to get out and so you dig through rock and then you go through half a mile of half a mile. And you emerge on the other side clean. And then you judge the evil that's put you there and you go get red and you pay for him when he comes out and you take him to paradise. That's where the novel ends. I've always wanted to talk to Stephen King that wrote that and go, are you crazy? Or did you know what you were writing here? It's the atonement. Ever see the Green Mile? Same thing. J.C., John Coffey, could crush anybody, but he's just good. And he will take your evil upon him, accused for what he did not do. The warden knows it's wrong. His wife, awake from a dream, knows that it's wrong. Just like Pilate. The executioner. Tom Hanks, I can't do this. He's innocent. Surrounded by a crowd cursing him for what he did not do. And he dies so he can go to his dream of Fred Astaire. Heaven, I'm in heaven. They like angels. Yeah. I always want to talk to Stephen King, see if he's crazy. Well, that's what the gospel is. He's come for you. He's come for you. I'm going to read you here. 
a poem we all had to memorize in the eighth grade in Waco, Texas, under Miss Hughes. If I'll read the first line, if you know it, you raise your hand. A lot of you young guys who know nothing may not know what this is. This was a woman that heard the message of Hebrews 2. And it inspired her to write a poem. And she wrote it in 10 minutes. Twas battered and scarred. And the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while. Who's heard this? To waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Only two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. And the music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who'll make it two? Two thousand, and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. And the people cheered, but some of them cried, we do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auction cheap to the thoughtless crowd, just like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite, quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Hebrews 2. Let's celebrate communion. For just a moment, Lord, we stop and we think about the majestic thing that was done for us on the cross, that you came down into Satan's playground and you bound the strong man. And now you are plundering his house and his possessions. And we get to gather with you. Thank you. You loved me ere I knew you. You gave Christ for me when I was still an enemy. And now much more am I secure because I am a son. Thank you. You have ascended to your God and my God, to your Father and my Father, and you have gone to us, your brethren, and you have made us your own. Thank you that you did what no ideology could do, what no skill could do, what no money, what no pleasure, what no fountain of youth could do, you have done. And thank you for him with nail-pierced hands that is the evidence of that payment. We'll remember him now in Jesus' name. Amen.